We're going to be looking at several passages of Scripture, and I'm trying to remember this as a Bible study and not a sermon tonight, but it'll probably end up turning into a little bit of both. But take your Bibles and go to Exodus chapter 20. This month, our theme is prophecy with eternity in view and thinking about things that will happen in the future. And a lot of times when we think about prophecy, sometimes we can get a little bit overwhelmed. I mean, what exactly is going to happen? How is it going to happen? Do I remember everything? Do I remember it in order? Am I sure that I know what's going to take place? And a lot of times when we start to think about all that, it, it, it really can become overwhelming. And a lot of times people can look at it and say, am I, am I going to be here for that? Am I sure I'm going to go to heaven? And of course, that's great things to think about with eternity in view and that being our uh, the on the forefront of our minds, we really should stop and think about, you know, am I prepared? Not only just because I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, but am I prepared to see Jesus one day? Am I ready? And I don't think any of us can answer yes. Now, I know when I uh, spoke to my grandmother last, she was ready. She was ready to go to heaven and see Jesus and uh, ready to enjoy that time together. But I don't know if I'm ready now. I don't know if my time came tomorrow. Um, I don't think I'd be ready. I mean, Lord, give me more time. I always feel like I could do more or uh, try to behave better or do my part a little bit better than what I've done so far. But when my time comes, it comes. And with that thought in mind, I should live every day thinking about the fact that if this is my last, what would people say? What would people think? What would my testimony be? What would uh, people be remembering about me? What would people be thinking about me? Uh, I'm preparing on Friday. I'll, I'll be one of the, the, the pastors or one of the preachers who preaches at my grandmother's funeral on Friday. It's really easy to prepare a funeral for someone who's been saved for over 70 years. It's really easy to be able to sit down and think about all the times that grandma took me to church and we sang and we heard Bible stories together and sermons together. It's really easy to think about what to say and how to be an encouragement, but Am I making sure that I'm leaving that same legacy for my children and my grandchildren? And I want to kind of look at this from a few angles. The, the word prophecy simply means a prediction. And a prophet is someone who is going to talk about the things that God is foretelling. And I want to look at this from a certain angle because it's kind of interesting when the thought came to mind about what I wanted to speak on. The, that I, I went straight to this thought. Look at Exodus chapter 20. And verse number five, well, let's start reading verse number one. It says, and God spake all these words saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I am the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Go over, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter number five. It's another parallel passage to this. And Exodus is the first time that, uh, Exodus chapter 20, it goes into the Ten Commandments. Then Deuteronomy is a book of remembrance. And Moses, again, reminds the children of Israel of everything that God told them that they were to do and what God expected of them. If you look here with me in verse number 9, a parallel passage to what we just read, it says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. You know, it's a powerful statement, the word hate. 
I, I don't know where you could go with that other than just if God is love, it is the opposite of that. Everything that God does for us, towards us, is because he loves us. Sometimes that's a hard concept for the world to understand. How could a loving God create so much bad? I was speaking to someone here recently, and I, I think it was you, Brother Atkins, we were talking about love or something, I think, the other day. And uh, God allows love to happen, or God allows some bad things to happen because God gives free will to everyone. He gives the ability to, for us to make our own choice. And the reason things like that happen is because God allows us to do what, as we see fit. God doesn't demand of us and say, if you don't do this, immediately death will come upon you and you will cease to exist. God says, I give you a choice. And what an amazing thing that God gives us a choice, because if I was God, thou shalt or else. And the else would be now or now. There is no other options. I mean, it's uh, pretty stern, pretty quick, but that's my response to life. God's is one of, I'll let you do as you choose. But God says, look, any choice you make, it has consequences. And if you're going to hate me, it won't just stay with you. It'll be something that is passed, not just to your children, but down to the third and fourth generation. But as you think about that, it's like, Sometimes we don't understand that concept. I, I, thinking about it a lot here recently, the third and fourth generation, I will go to a, a funeral this Friday and there will be four generations in the room. My grandfather, my dad, me, my son, that'll be four generations there. There was five generations for a short time when my great-grandmother was alive as well, but God gives a, multiple generations for us to look at things and to consider things. And when we hate God, now here's what's interesting. When you look at the context of this, it's not in the context of someone raising their fist and shaking at God and saying, I hate God. It's in the context of they have made something more important than God himself. They've put an idol together. They've put something in the place that uh, was a representation of God. God didn't want that. He said, look, I don't want you to try to represent me as anything because how could it possibly be accurate some people say well you know I'll, I'll make this statue and and of course we'll be worshiping God and that must mean uh, that we surely are still worshiping God if you look at Exodus 32 and when Aaron uh, uh, creates the golden calf and he tells the people we're going to have a feast tomorrow the, he says the feast will be unto the Lord Jehovah but that was a problem God does not want us to make a representation of him because it will fall utterly short. How could we put a representation on God of someone who could speak everything into existence? Yeah, but how often do we? We try to personify God. Well, maybe it'll make him more relatable. God doesn't need help being relatable. God gives us his word, which is powerful and sharp. And if we'll use it, it will be effective. But so often today, we get afraid to use the word of God or speak who God is and not be ashamed of it. So often when we talk to unsaved people or maybe a politician, maybe somebody with some money, maybe somebody who has a position of influence, sometimes we try to be careful with the way that we use our words. And I understand. We understand who we're standing in front of and the opportunity of who we have to talk to. But I must ask the question, if God was standing there, would you talk that way? Would you say, hey, look, this is God. He's, he's amazing and awesome and wonderful and powerful. Well, you know, well, let me, no, we wouldn't stutter. We would stand and say, look, this is who God is, and let me tell you how wonderful he's been to me. 
And let me just begin to tell you the stories and share the things with you of what God means to me. The world is going to see who God is. We're the only representation they get. And when we start to make God into something that he is not or try to represent God as something that he could never stoop so low to be, that is when God gets a little frustrated. And he says, look, it won't just be that this sin comes upon just you, but it's going to be passed down for several generations. Well, I wish that there was a way to kind of figure this out, but I, I don't want to just focus on this here directly, maybe just a little parentheses, because I want to get to the two passages of Scripture I want to look at. But if you're a young person in this room today, and young meaning you're younger than your parents who are still alive, or I won't mention names, but you're younger than a lot of other people in this room, I want you to understand something. You are still a representation of who God is to other people. And there's never a time where you kind of get to take a step back and you get to kind of relax a little bit and say, well, I've put my time in, I've raised a few kids, I've got a few grandkids, I've got great grandkids. None of that ever says that we get to stop being who God called us to be. So if you're a young person today and that's anybody who's still alive, I encourage you to do this. If you want to know where Satan is going to come and attack you in your life, study the sins of your mom and dad. Study the sins of your grandparents. Now, I'm not saying go and talk to them and say, tell me every bad thing you've ever done or all the terrible things that you've ever done because they'll probably look at you and go, go away. I don't want to tell you all the bad things I've done. But if you're wise, you'll listen. You'll pay attention when they tell stories. I know my dad's watching, so I'm going to tell a story. I remember my dad telling a story one time when he was a younger person. And of course, he's much older and wiser now, but when he was a teenager... Uh, he used to run around town and kind of cause a few problems every once in a while. Well, he got this great idea, and I shouldn't tell the story. There's college kids in here, but I'm going to tell it anyway. He used to run around, and uh, every year when fireworks would come out, him and his buddies would go and play tag. And they'd go buy Roman candles, and they'd drive around their cars, and they would shoot at each other with these Roman candles. Well, one time, one of their buddies wasn't so smart, and he shot at his friend. His friend moved out of the way on purpose and shot a police car with a Roman candle. I won't finish the story, but it didn't end very well. Uh, but sometimes in life, you got to realize, hey, every once in a while you like to goof off. Just make sure the police aren't around, all right? That's just the moral. No, I'm just kidding. That's, you got to learn and see, all right, Lord, there's some things in life that maybe I'll be a little bit more able to do that I shouldn't do. And some things that maybe I should pay attention to. Now, I'm on a serious note, there are some sins that Satan's going to attack you with. That's what's called your besetting sins. It's not just yours. They probably were your parents as well. They probably were someone in your families. <clears throat> I know that this sometimes, and we could really study into this and talk about first generation and second generation, third generation Christians, and look at all this on a detailed level. But I ultimately say this. You need to look at this because when Satan wants to come and get you, like the Bible tells us that Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, Satan has come to have you and he'll sift you as wheat. He's going to have you and there's not much you can do about it. But just know I've prayed for you. I'm here for you and I want to know that you can still make it. You're going to fall, but I can still use you. 
And so I encourage you today, it's to know where these attacks will come from because you can protect yourself from Satan. You can put up defenses in your life. And parents, if you're wise, you'll help your kids. You'll train your children with the weaknesses that you know that you have. And that's not a problem. So often we think that our weaknesses should just remain uh, uh, quiet. No, as parents, our responsibility to our children is to, to look and find and identify our weaknesses and make them strengths in our children. And if we can do that, we can help them to be better than we ever possibly could be. And it's not just for our sake, but it's for the sake of those that God will have our kids to help influence. Some of you, maybe you're not able to have children as I look around the room. You know, God is gonna put people in your life that you can help to build and strengthen. So we have a discipleship program. It's why we have Sunday school classes. It's why we have junior churches and bus routes and teen Sunday school classes and children's choirs and all the things that we do is because we understand the importance of training our youth. And if we can train them, boy, maybe we can make this world just a little bit better. That was all parentheses. Now let's look at a couple passages of scriptures, if you will. Go to 2 Kings chapter number 10. I want to look at this idea and thought of the couple other places where the talk of four generations, three and four generations comes about in the Bible and can see a few things, give a few points, and we'll be done a few minutes early. I know there's a lot of things going on tonight after church to get ready for the ladies' conference, and I want to make sure they don't get home at 10 o'clock or 10.30 or 11 or however long. Never mind, we won't jinx it. All right, look here, if you will, with me at 2 Kings chapter number 10 and go to verse number 11. And in verse number 11, I'm going to start reading because the, the main verse I want to get to is another place. But verse 11, it says, So Jehu slew all that remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel, and all his great men, and his kinsfolk, and his priests, until he had left none remaining. And he rose and departed and came to Samaria. And as he was as the shearing house in the way, uh, it goes on. If you look at verse number 30, it says, and the Lord said unto Jehu, 2 Kings 10, verse 30, and the Lord said unto Jehu, because thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes, and it's done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in mine heart, thy children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Now, if you understand the uh, Israeli history here. This is a time after the nation has been split into two in the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. In the northern kingdom, almost all of the kings were wicked and evil. And the Bible will compare them to Jeroboam, who was the first king, who made an idol uh, and he set it up in several different places throughout the remnant of Israel because he knew that if the Israelites went back to Jerusalem and uh, began to worship uh, God in the temple and sacrificing, that possibly their hearts would be pulled back to Judah and they would leave and depart from the kingdom. And he didn't want to lose the power that he just got. So Jeroboam, even though God had told him he would be a king and God would establish him as a king if he would do what's right, Jeroboam decided, I'll take this opportunity to create a God that isn't real. And he knew it. The people knew it but he still did it. Nobody said anything. Nobody screamed at him. No one stood up and said, well, we shouldn't do this. Maybe you should rethink this. And they just went along with it. And of course, God uh, brings judgment upon Jeroboam. And then the next king does the same thing. And the next king does something similar. And then we get kings like Ahab, who were just utterly wicked and terrible. And uh, not just him, but because of, also because of his wife Jezebel, who, uh, um, who was with him and caused his heart to go different directions. Boy, if I could just reiterate to all those that are here, 
make sure that you marry right. That you take time and you make sure you get counsel and you say, Lord, help me to make sure I marry right. You get one chance to do it right. Why is that? Because then after that, you might get married again and maybe that'll be uh, 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 all of God's will, but you get one chance to do it right. And I beg you and plead with you, seek godly advice, seek godly counsel to make sure you do it right. Here Ahab had Jezebel and Jezebel pulled his heart away. It comes along Jehu and Jehu is commanded by God, I want you to destroy all of Ahab's family, all of his priests, all the wickedness he created. And Jehu did it. And God says, great, now let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to get to see or you're going to get to die knowing that your fourth generation is going to get to be king. Boy, hey, that brought about all the confidence in the world. He knew that there wasn't going to be an uprising. There wasn't going to be someone who would show up and kill his family in the middle of the night, which had happened several times in the history of Israel already to this point. And he says, this is wonderful. God has seen me and seen the good that I've done. I've made it. I've arrived. Look at verse 31. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. Boy, what a sad statement. He had a chance to establish right for all four of those generations. For time, we won't look at it, but every single child that he has doesn't do what is right in the sight of God. Matter of fact, they do what is wrong. Turn your Bibles over to 2 Kings chapter 15, if you will. And we're looking at several passages, and then we'll get to the several points that I'll have here in just a moment. But 2 Kings chapter number 15, and start looking at verse number uh, 8, if you will. 2 Kings 15, verse 8, it says, In the thirty and eighth year of Azariah, king of Judah, and that's the king in the southern, did Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reign over Israel in Samaria six months. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. And Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and smote him before the people and slew him and reigned in his stead. And the rest of Acts of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. And look at this verse. This was the word of the Lord which he spake unto Jehu, saying, Thy sons shall sit on the throne of Israel unto the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. God kept his promise as short as he possibly could. You know, the great truth here is that you can see in this, the good thing is that God always keeps his promises no matter how stupid we are. That's encouraging because I, as uh, I think even Solomon said, I'm a pretty brutish man. I'm pretty stupid sometimes. I do some crazy things that I shouldn't do and I say things and I think things and I do things and I'm like, Lord, why do you put up with me? He does. But as you see here, when he came to keeping the promise that he made to Jehu, he kept it. Well, that ought to be encouraging to me that God will keep promises, but here's the discouraging thing. How much longer could have Jehu's descendants been in power? I mean, seriously, I mean, could it have been for the rest of the history of Israel? Could he have turned the hearts in that one moment of the people back to God? Could he have in that moment when God had already praised him and given him all the uh, accolades and had given him the promise already, could he have not just immediately said, all right, let's go back to Jerusalem and get back into the temple? God already promised me that I'd be king. I'm not going to lose the people. I'm not going to lose the heart of the people. I have them. They're mine. God promised it. But so often don't we have the promises of God and we just throw them away? 
Whoa, God meant that for those people in the Bible. I'm not those people. I'm not as good as they are. Have you read the Bible? I don't mean that uh, cavalier, but I mean, as you read through the Bible, there are very few people that God doesn't tell us about some sin in their life that they commit. Why? Because God wants us to see that they were normal people just like us. They had all the same problems. They had all the same issues. They had all the same things that we'll go through. Financial problem, family problem, uh, you name it. They had it. But yet, through all of that, they kept their faith in God. They kept strong to God. They kept doing what they were supposed to. And then we see people like this who are here to help us learn. If Jehu would have just decided, I'm going to do right, what could have been the difference? Look here with me one more passage of Scripture. Job chapter number 42, if you will. Job chapter number 42. We've seen an example of someone who God made promises to and they didn't take advantage of it. And of course, they suffer the consequences for their family's sake that after six months of being king, God kept his promise and then they were gone. Look here, if you will, in Job chapter 42. And for time, we won't look at several other passages here, but in verse number six, or excuse me, uh, verse number 16, this is after Job has prayed for his friends. This is after Job has promised him you'll get twice as much as you have and God has blessed him. In verse number 16, it says, after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons, even four generations. You know, when you live life right, God will bless your family for a time to come. You know, I stand here today and I, I know it's nothing that I've done to bring myself here out of maybe making right decisions but I think it's because God has blessed me with a goodly heritage. I, I've gone back and I, I find people who are saved, church-going, people seven generations back in my family. I'm blessed. I'm blessed beyond measure. I understand there's people in this room, you've been saved a few years. Some of you, you're the first generation saved in your family. Some of you, you've, you would kill to have parents who are saved. Some of you would just long to have grandparents that would live right and do right. And I'm blessed. Not just on one side, but both sides of my family. And I know that it's nothing that I've done outside of doing what's right, but understanding God has given me a good heritage because I've had some family who's made right decisions. And I can stand here and say, when you make right decisions, it will affect generations that you'll never meet. You'll never see. Some of us, we won't live long enough to see our third and fourth generation. Some of us, we, we won't live that long. My mom's side of the family, I have a, a, a grandfather I've never met. He passed away when my mom was six years old. Yet he was a pastor. He started a church that's still alive today. He was somebody who was faithful. Matter of fact, in his county in North Carolina, when he died in uh, 1972, he was single-handedly responsible for keeping that to be the last dry county in North Carolina. You were not allowed to sell alcohol in that county because my grandfather, every time the city count or county council wanted to meet about that, he'd get a busload or two busloads of church people and drive down to the council meeting and say, hey, let me get some people to tell you why you shouldn't do this. You know, can I tell you that's, a great heritage to be able to have and to be able to enjoy. You say, well, what can I do to make sure that I have that goodly heritage and I can see this happen? 
I'm going to give you three things and I'll be done. And I promise I won't be long. Number one, understand this. I am responsible for my decisions. I don't know how often, and, and we're all guilty of this. Someone will bring a problem to you. And what's the first thing you want to do? Well, let's point. Let's redirect. Let's uh, think about so-and-so who's way worse than me right now. Uh, how about, you know, if you've had kids, the oldest blames the middle and the middle blames the baby. And the baby's like, I'm too cute. You can't punish me. All right. But anyway, um, at least that's how it is in my house right now. But that's kind of how life is. We, we want to pass the buck along to whoever we can get blamed to so it gets us out. How often do you hear people say, man, you did what you shouldn't do. And they say, yeah, I know I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. <gasps> Heart attack. People would fall over dead if we did that sometimes. Because our response is, as is human nature, to deflect. But ultimately it's this. I'm responsible for whatever decision I make. Some of us, were at the stage of life, and I know I have no young people in here. I've got a lot of college students that are in here. And praise the Lord, uh, you college students are so able to be here on Wednesday night. I understand it's been a long week. You work, and some of you able to be here on a Wednesday night. God's just given the ability to do that. Appreciate those who aren't in college who make church a very important thing. Don't ever stop doing that. Make it important all the time. But that's your decision. And when I say that, you have an opportunity to see the fruit of the decisions that you'll make. Now, here's the thing. Some of us will make wrong decisions. Okay, if you make a wrong decision, you have to own it. You can't try to get out of it and blame everybody else. It's the opposite of what you see on TV. It's the opposite of what you see play out in politics and the newspaper. Because everyone wants to say, well, it wasn't my fault. It's because of, and you know the example you're thinking of because you've used it. You've given it. You've directed it. No. Whatever decision you make, it was your decision, and you've got to live with it. Now, here's the thing. When you make good decisions, you're proud of those decisions, right? You're like, hey, man, I made a right decision. And it turned out great. This is wonderful. When you make a bad decision, you don't have the same fervency. Yeah, I did that. I shouldn't have. And the Lord's going to help me get through it. And hopefully I can get some people to help me get through it. And we'll talk about that in a second. Number two, understand God wants you to succeed. You know, so often we will get overwhelmed with the idea and thought, does God really love me as an individual? And we'll stop and we'll get ourselves all messed up in the head and think, well, maybe God really doesn't love me. And if God doesn't love me, maybe he doesn't want me to succeed. Maybe he's just got me here wasting time and wasting money. Maybe he's uh, pushing me in the wrong direction. Maybe he's causing this problem and that problem. And maybe God's, and you'll get all screwy in the head. Understand and just stop. If God wants me to succeed, well, then I want to make sure that I do what God wants me to do. And if I understand that, then I'm going to go, and it leads me straight to point three, is there are people that want to help us. So make good friends. If God wants us to succeed, then guess what he'll always have for us? People that will help us to make the right decisions. If there are people to help you make the right decisions, you know what you'll probably end up the end of your life feeling like successful and that's what God wanted from the beginning if I can reshape in another way so often sometimes when you talk to unsaved people they'll say man what's it like to be a Christian must it be so just horrible because you have all those rules that you have to follow and when you're like what no 
I just have a God who loves me and wants me to be successful at life. He wants me to be happy. And you look at him and say, can you be honest with me? Are you really happy when you're so drunk you can't remember what you did last night? Now, when you say that, they get that sheepish look. Oh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. But if they stop and think about it, no. When they stop and think about, man, I've done everything I can to try to make myself happy. And it just, it isn't successful. It's because you're doing it the wrong way. But when you'll stop and say, all right, if God wants me to be successful, he's got the right way. So he's probably got people that will help me. So let me make good friends. The single probably most important decision you'll make after salvation, after who you'll marry, is the people that you'll surround yourself with to help you make good decisions. If you fail in this one area, you know what you'll probably do? You'll probably make a lot of bad decisions. And why is that? Because normally the wrong friends don't have the right advice for you. Now understand this. Sometimes you can get good advice from people, but that isn't the the advice that you should get. That advice isn't for you because you'll go talk to who you want to hear from. What does that mean? Well, I asked so-and-so and and they tell me I should clean my room and I don't want to clean my room. So I'm going to go talk to somebody else until I find that person that says, well, you know, I found a long time ago, you waste many hours in life when you clean your room. And that's just a horrible idea. You know, if you don't learn to clean your room before you get married, your wife makes you clean your room, and that's never a pleasant experience, all right? I don't speak from experience. No, of course not, all right? Uh, My wife, uh, she likes clean, okay? And I have learned to be clean in the way that she likes clean, not the way that I like clean. Uh, And that works very well. Because if I tried to find somebody else to tell me opposite of her, they ain't very good friends because they don't have to live with my wife tonight or tomorrow or the next week or next month or in the doghouse or wherever else I'll spend. We don't even have a dog, but that's just how bad it gets at my house. No, I'm just kidding. When you stop and realize that if I find the friend that God wants me to have, he'll give me the counsel that I need at that moment. It can be life-changing. You know, I, I look here in this room and there are several people that I am reminded of who've given me advice throughout the year. Some here, some not here. Uh, I look here, Brother Eddie, something happened about 11 years ago. Brother Eddie gave me advice. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Brother Eddie right now. I think about Dick Kennedy, who used to sit back here. And I was walking down that aisle one day, and he stopped me. And he says, you better make sure you spend some time with your family. I'm like, well, yeah, I just did, like 20 minutes this morning. I mean, that enough? He, he stopped me. He said, hey, you need to listen to me. And he went, and he gave me a 10-minute earful that I didn't ask for, but I need it. And as I look around this room, I can mention many other people, and I don't have the time because I want to be fair to you, but when you have the right people help you make the right decisions, life is enjoyable. But you know, I'm not living for me. I'm living for my kids, for my grandkids, for my great-grandkids. I'm living for the kids that I won't have, but I'll have an opportunity to influence. I'm living for the people that I won't even know that will be influenced by what I say or what I do or by when I pray or whatever the case may be. And ultimately brings me to this. If I'm going to live with eternity in view, it isn't just for me and for my sake, but it's for the sake of the people that will come after me who have to pick up my mantle, who are going to have to pick up after me 
And I want to be honest, I want them to have to clean up and it not be a problem and a mess. I want it to be that they reminisce of good things that they hear about, not things that are depressing and aggravating. I want them to be able to say, boy, I'm glad that they stood up and made the right decisions instead of, man, I wish that guy would have had better friends or made better decisions. I don't know where you're at in life today, but can I tell you this? God is the type of God who's very merciful and long-suffering and kind, and you may have made some bad decisions, but that's not the end. Say, well, how do you know? Because you're still breathing. You're not dead yet. The wonderful thing about God is he gives us a chance to reconcile with him. My wife has a statement uh, posted in her house. She says, everything begins new when the leaves begin to fall. She loves autumn. It's uh, fall time and the colors. You know, it's a reminder. You know, everything renews itself every year. I may have not had all the best things that I should have done or could have done or would have done. You know, it doesn't mean I should just quit and give up. Doesn't mean I should just feel like, oh, that's the end. And what's the point of even trying anymore? It should be, you know, it's not about me. It's about the people that'll come after me. And if I can make it better for them, if I can make it more enjoyable for them, then that's worth making the right decision for. Lord, we love you. And we